The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to another episode of Dangerous World Podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for your continued support of the show, whether it be on Patreon, whether it be just leaving reviews, telling your friends about the show, buying t-shirts at DangerousWorldStore.com. I appreciate it very much. Haven't done an episode like this in what feels like a long time. It hasn't been that long, but I was pumping out quite a bit of content, and then my computer took a shit on me, as you may or may not know. So everything's back up and running. Everything's good to go. So we should be back to that normal schedule here. So watch out. There's going to be some shit talking coming up directly. Uh, Not necessarily in this episode, but um, it was interesting. You know, with this particular episode, the individual had reached out. um, Me and my horrible planning and scheduling, the, the initial meeting fell through. And then we ended up, you know, making this work perfectly kind of in a weird way where I'm looking, excuse me, where I'm looking into the Jesuits and the Freemasons and the Catholics and the Protestants and all this shit. And this individual here, Charles Utter, who wrote uh, a really interesting book by the title Roman Collar Crime. And the full title of that book is Roman Collar Crime Violated the Transgressions of a Small Town Priest. Again, by Charles A. Utter, a really interesting and and friendly gentleman. Very, very nice guy. You'll see me uh, be a little more professional throughout this episode because uh, I felt like I was in the presence of somebody that wouldn't appreciate my dumb jokes. We do make a couple jokes, uh, casual jokes back and forth. Not as funny as some of the other episodes, but still a lot of great information and a really interesting story here. Um, So I hope that you all enjoy this. And directly after this episode, I'll be talking about Albert Pike and the Three World Wars. Um, There's a really interesting kind of narrative behind Albert Pike and the Three World Wars that he predicted back in the late 1800s. I want to say off the top of my head, 1871, that may be off by a few years or a few decades. But he wrote a letter to Massini, uh, Giuseppe Massini. Out of Italy, if you can uh, imagine that, with a name like Giuseppe. I don't think he's coming out of uh, fucking Africa, right? I mean, this is a, this is an Italian mafioso, uh, Illuminati, 
New World Order or Old World Order. Tune in to find out who he's part of because this is very interesting when you get into the idea of what that whole thing represents. But this episode ties in really nicely with that power structure and the narrative behind the Catholic faith. And um, this isn't meant to bash Catholics, although I consistently and constantly bag on the Catholic faith. Uh, that's not one of these type episodes. Uh, this is a, what I would like to think is a respectful conversation. Charles is a great guy. Um, in no way, shape, or form is he you know, stirring up any kind of shit. He is here to give his side of the story and talk about a very, very interesting story in his small North Dakota town with a very, very strange cult-like satanic, in my opinion, priest. And uh, it was just a fun, fun thing to listen into. Now, before we roll into it, I do want to let you know you can find his book on Amazon, Roman Collar Crime on Amazon, Roman Collar Crime. And um, he also wanted to make it known that if anyone was out there and interested in this kind of stuff and you own a bookstore or maybe you want to buy a few of these things cheaper at a wholesale price, you can go to IngramSpark.com and uh, and check out what they have to offer there, too. Uh, it seemed like something that he was promoting. And again, he's a very kind-hearted person. And I really enjoyed the conversation with this guy. Conversations like this challenge me to not act like the douchebag that I normally am and to try to act like a respectable journalist or member of the media, even though I consider myself neither. But I got to try and act like that when I'm talking with somebody like this. So it was cool. But either way, um, I like I said at the beginning, I appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash Dangerous World Podcast. If you'd like to leave a review, if you don't have three fucking dollars to throw down uh, a month, you know, to get full episodes, including this full episode and including like literally like a hundred other ones, I understand. Leave a review. It's free. And I will do my very best to read a review every single month. And this one was nice. This is from uh, Excavator45 question mark uh, left on August 29th of 2022. He's, the title is says uh, best podcast. He goes on to say the only podcast to get true knowledge. Couldn't take tinfoil hat any longer. Glad I found dangerous world. Who's tinfoil hat. She sounds hot. I don't know who it is, but she sounds hot. Now uh, with that being said, if you'd like to leave a review, Maybe it'll get read, okay? You can talk shit about me or other people. If I find it interesting, I will read it. That one was from Apple. I think that Spotify is doing it too. I usually use Apple Podcasts, so that's where most of the reads are going to come from. But thank you all uh, for being patient with my little uh, bit of downtime and chaos. We're having some shit go down electronically. Maybe I'm under attack, or maybe sometimes electronics fail. I don't know. But uh, with that being said, guys, enjoyed this episode with Charles A. Utter, an awesome, awesome author and uh, just an all-around great person. I think you're going to hear some things in here that are very uh, interesting from a conspiratorial mindset for sure. So uh, I'm going to shut up. Let's get into the episode with Charles Utter, and I'll see you on the other side of this, guys. Take care and enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I've got Charles Utter here to talk with me a little bit about his experiences in a in a very interesting case. And uh, he is the author of Roman Collar Crime. 
uh, which is a very interesting book. And I'd like to hear a lot more about what went into the creation of this and just everything behind this very interesting idea of what almost seems like satanic ritual abuse in a way. Uh, maybe, maybe you wouldn't take it that far. I'm not putting any words in your mouth, but it seems very, very on par with just the powers of this religious ideology, whether it be Catholic, whether it be any other religion. I mean, Catholic's the easiest one to really point fingers at because it's the biggest right now. But uh, Charles, I, I'm I'm really grateful for you to have this conversation with me here, and I'm interested in where you want to go with this conversation. First of all, how you doing, sir? I'm I'm doing well, enjoying life. Um, really excited to you know talk to people about my book. Um, I've uh, become accustomed to many many questions, and uh, so uh, get an opportunity to uh, tell people about uh, you know my role in all of this uh, i let me just show you the the, the book so people yeah. can see it it's it's called roman collar crime and then while it's up there uh i'm going to uh can you see it all right yeah yeah violated the transgressions of a small town priest now this will get us i think going on the conversation yeah i'm going to read, read the back uh, uh page of the, or, yeah the back of the book please do it says the pride of small town North Dakota community is the Our Lady of Perpetual Help School with its elite sports teams and brand new facilities. It's a shining beacon of success in a town of less than 1,000 people. The school's accomplishments are veiled by an air of innocence and righteousness. Rumors emerge as they do in small towns, but they never quite flourish. Our Lady of Perpetual Help has just secured the 1970 state basketball championship, and sports writer Frank Nash sits down for an interview with the man behind it all, Father Joseph Brennan. But as Nash digs further into Brennan's work in the town, he begins to peek behind the veil, and he finds that something sinister awaits. Nash's story on a winning basketball team contorts into a shocking tale of sexual assault, corruption, and the trusted man who terrorized an entire town for years. Mm. I thought that was well written. I didn't write that. <laughs> oh, you didn't. I, I was going to say that was a phenomenal piece there. You know, it, it, it's so interesting to me when, whether it's a small town, whether it's a massive city or a world for that matter, they've put these people up on pedestals and these people get away with sometimes literally murder and sometimes even worse than that. I mean, there's, there's horrible things that go on. And then even from like a pop culture perspective, you know, I was watching a, a documentary on Michael Jackson earlier today and mm -hmm. the way that people viewed this man, um, his fans. I mean, people would faint at the sight of this guy. I mean, like, it's almost like some sort of a God figure. Yeah. And it's mind blowing to me as somebody that doesn't really put anyone on a on a pedestal like that. What obviously you were you know, living in this town, from what I understand, correct? Right. Was it just like this this guy just had like a, a massive um, sort of a, a power over the people there? Or what got you particularly interested in what was going on here? Well, you know, the, the, uh, well, I I went to high school while that guy was uh, running the school. And what was his name? His Well, I've, I call him Father Joe Brennan in the book. Uh, it's it's really a novel, historical novel. So. 
Uh, it's not a perfect biography or anything like that, but um, he, uh, uh, I'm sorry, what was your question? <laughs> Get going no, on. No, yeah, so what was the priest's name? Oh, oh, his name is actually Father Eugene Lemire's. Okay. And uh, yeah, he, he was there for 20 years, starting in 1954. And uh, so they finally got rid of him in 1974. And so the book goes through all, all of the things that, uh, not all of the things, because I didn't, I didn't put everything in the book because I wanted it to be reasonably short. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he perpetrated his, his, uh, his, uh, his uh, transgressions, I guess, uh, for the entire 20 years. When he first got into the community, uh, within a year, he had already fathered a child with a young woman who had just graduated from high school. Mm. And so he's a Catholic priest, supposed to be celibate. He's already fathered his child. But the interesting thing about it was nobody found out about it. Mm. So he was uh, keeping it. It was... It was so secret that I didn't know about it until I had already started writing the book. I got a phone call from the, the best friend of the girl that had gotten pregnant. And she said, I, it looks like you don't know about the first one. <laughs> so wow. there, was, there was another one. So. Yeah. And so that, I mean, he started in right away. And the town was pretty much 50% Catholic and 50% Lutheran. I mean, there was others, obviously, but... Uh, um, so there was always this, this competition, uh, between Catholic and, and Lutheran and the priests, whether they were this priest or any other priest, they were all talking about how anti-Catholic everybody was and how we had to, you know, uh, pull, pull in and, uh, protect ourselves against these anti-Catholics. And so there was always this tension between, uh, Protestants and Catholics in, in this little town. And as kids, uh, during the summertime, we had all kinds of friends that went to cat to the public school or were not Catholic, and but in, during the school year, he would do everything he could to keep us from uh, interacting with those kids. Uh, and and were you Catholic yourself? Yes. Yes. And are, are you still? Yeah, I still am. Uh, I uh, probably not a big advocate of the hierarchy or anything like that. <laughs> it's it's a personal faith journey for me, sure. more than you know being a, a member of a. Um, behemoth, I guess I call it, uh, of a church like the Catholic Church. I, I think that, uh, you know, personal relationships are much more de- more important than uh, the structure. Absolutely. I mean, are, are you, um, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is, is it safe to say that you're against big religion? Well, I think it's a mistake. Uh, I can live with it. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you just ignore it. Uh, it's a little bit disconcerting because uh, there's some great priests out there that give great messages to the people, uh, but they will not ever go. They'll only go so far. Okay. They are captive of the system and the system is basically uh, anachronistic. Uh, you know, I could have said corrupt and maybe it is corrupt in a lot of ways, but it's just totally anachronistic. Hmm. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked for a hundred years and it won't change. And so, you know, uh, there's nothing I can do about that. Sure. Uh, and so I just have my own personal relationship with uh, the good Lord and uh, I move on and 
And uh, I practice a meditative prayer, a prayer that uh, is looked askance by the church. By the church, um, I just ignore that. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me. So that's kind of where I'm. Yeah, I think that's healthy. I think it's good to have your own kind of relationship. And I mean, you know, who who am I to say how anyone should believe? If you're a fan of big religion, I mean, go for it. If you're not, but yeah, I mean, go for it as well. But I I find it really interesting too that you bring up this idea of Catholics and Protestants, like the idea of the wasp, right? The white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Is right. this kind of what you're talking about when you're referring to Protestants? Is it like a power, like where the the Protestants kind of uh, you say it was 50-50 Catholic, uh, Protestant. Were the Protestants kind of elitist in a way, or were the Catholics the ones that were more elitist? You know, the tensions were were uh, um, created more by the by the priests, the, by the by the clergy in the Catholic Church, because the community. Uh, my my dad uh, had a hardware store in this community. He couldn't uh, show prejudice against non-Catholics. I mean, those were his customers. In fact, he was raised Baptist and turned Catholic just to get married to my mother. So, <laughs> um, so th- there wasn't really, in that, in my opinion, that much tension between the people or the churches. But it was the uh, Catholic hierarchy, the Catholic clergy, that that tried to to isolate the Catholic people from the Protestants, maybe so we wouldn't be corrupted. I, you know, I don't know uh, what the what the full picture there was, but uh, I just know that that. Uh, they talked about uh, non-Catholics being anti-Catholic, working against the Catholics. Uh, you know, it's like uh, the uh, day that Luther broke away from the church was repeated every day for the next uh, seven centuries or whatever it was. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's kind of weird. And, you know, the priest uh, was almost worshipped by the Catholic faithful, uh, that was just the way the, everybody was brought up. We we learned that in school, in our religion classes, at church on Sundays, in the sermons, um, that you know these priests were special people, and some some of them frankly were, but uh, some of them were evil. And this this man was was consummate evil. Yeah, it seems like it would be a megaphone, right? Power and money and things like this are a megaphone. If you're a, a good person, deep down. And then you get power and money, you're going to be a great person. But then if you're a bad person deep down and you get power and money, you're going to be a downright evil person. And you're going to be able to exploit either the good or the evil, depending on the way that you see things. And uh, yeah, again, it happens on all levels here. You mentioned something before we started talking, and I want to get more into the the story of the book here. But, you know, the, the idea of the Protestants and the the Catholics um i i've been doing some research separately from you know our conversation here where the protestants really seem to be uh to grossly simplify it they were in support of like freemason ideology and then the catholics are very in support of jesuit ideology and these two factions of elite society have been kind of uh combative with each other since the Freemasons have really been around. I mean, the Jesuits come around after the Freemasons from my research, but um, the Jesuits being the society of Jesus, they're trying to protect the Pope's uh, rule after, you know, Martin Luther back in, if I'm not mistaken, the 1500s or so translates um, 
Latin to German and then to English, right? If I'm not mistaken, with the Bible. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure the you know the process there, but yeah. From what I understand, it was Latin to German and then later English. And and this is really diminishing the Pope's power because now you don't need the Pope to hear the word of God, right? Now you Oh yeah. I, I can just interrupt you for a second. Absolutely. We went we had religion classes uh, virtually uh every day in in school. And we were never the Bible was never mentioned. As a Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that was not something they wanted us to be uh involved with because it it allows us to do our own thinking. And in those days that was not what they were looking for. Uh they wow. wanted to they wanted to control our minds so that they could keep the church together. Uh because it you know, at that point once once Martin Luther King's Martin Luther King, excuse me. Martin Luther, yeah. <laughs> Martin I know Luther, what you meant. <laughs> Martin Luther uh uh split from the church, why uh then every everything went into, you know, um batten down the hatches and protect uh, the faith and do everything you can to keep the people from uh, being influenced by those rebels. And, and uh, that's my view of history. Uh, and I think it bear, you bear witness, this priest bore witness to that in the way he handled his, his message to the people in our community. And uh, it was interesting. And so you're talking elementary school here for you when they, they didn't mention the Bible or, or, no, high school. High school. Okay. So not to not to date anything here, uh, but when when was this? When were you in, in high school? I know I'm completely contradictory to not dating yourself, but I'm just curious as to when the the yeah. era was when they're not when they're telling you don't pay attention to the Bible, even though it seems like it's a hundred percent relevant to what you're trying to learn. Well, you know, that's uh maybe I overstated that. They didn't try to keep us from reading the Bible. They just never mentioned it. Mentioned it. Sure. It was, I mean, there would be quotes uh, from Jesus or St. Paul or Mark, Mark, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you know, the, the authors of the, the gospels and what have you, but there would never be never any mention of, of a study of, of the Bible. Just listen to us. We'll tell you what you need to know. And, uh, so yeah, and I I graduated in high school in 1964, and uh, my oldest sister, who was uh, critical in getting the priest removed from the community, uh, graduated in 1958 mm. or 56, I think. Yeah, 56 because he she, maybe in 55 because he he came there in 54 and she was in the high school uh, for one year while he was there. Yeah. And you say he left in the seventies. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting story for sure. And uh, you mentioned too, that uh, your son, if I'm not mistaken, had Jesuit education. Uh, uh, yes. He went to a, a Regis Jesuit high school here in the Denver area. And it was a very good education. It's an excellent school. Uh, you know, the Jesuits are kind of a mixed bag. Um, they can be very radical, but on the other hand, they have a really uh, tough commitment to to education. And so they tend to be really good educators. 
and the best of the best uh, are where you want your children to be sure. because they, they do a great job. And we we're very happy with our, our son's education. Do you feel that it's uh, that it's a hundred percent education, um, free thinking education, or do you feel like there's a touch of indoctrination involved with that? You know what? Um, I don't really have a strong opinion about that. Uh, I I don't think that there was a lot of indoctrination about you know as far as the indoctrination into the Catholic Church. Um, I, 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 Maybe I, more I, power structure indoctrination, I, and I'm not I'm not saying that this was the case or anything, but I'm that, just curious. I, that, that's key. That's that's good view because um, the, it was a parent, and and the Jesuits never tried to deny it that they were a, a part of the structure of the church. Sure. And like you said, uh, I can't remember now who the founder of the Jesuits were. Do you have the, his name offhand? Uh, I could find it really quick. I uh, I know Massini was very heavily involved. I can find it right away, though. Saint, um, uh, Saint uh, something. <laughs> well, the Smet was really influential in. Uh, well, that's like, came later, though. Yeah, in the in the eighteen hundreds. Um, I should know this guy's name. I've been looking at them. Oh, Deola, right, or Leola. Ignatius of Leola is that Ignatius. right? Yes, there you go. Ignatius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Spaniard, a Spaniard. Yeah. So his mission was to, to defend the church in the times that it was being coming under attack. And and uh, so they've had a special place in the Catholic Church ever since. And specifically to defend the Pope, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it's yes. interesting. But yeah, no, I, I find it just... Anytime I get the opportunity to talk with someone that has a relationship with the Jesuits. I find it. I, I mean, I try to, to learn whatever I can about what they teach. And, and uh, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to me that your son seems to have a, had a good relationship with them. Yeah. Well, and, and all of the people, all of the friends that we made while my son was at Regis uh, pretty much universally feel, feel the same way. And in fact, uh, the, friend that I said that was being, you know, uh, courted by, you know, one of the priests while he was in high school. Um, he sent his kids there and, uh, he can't speak highly enough of the place. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag when it comes to the Jesuits. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. But, um, well, let's get in and into more of, of the story of, of this specific priest and, you know, the, the entire, just the, the grip that he seemed to have had on the town and really the work in your book here. Um, where, where do you want to start exactly? I know we kind of, we're bouncing around a little bit there. Where do you think it's like a solid spot to start just for the audience here to really kind of understand what was going on in your town? You said it was North Dakota. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, we start from the beginning because, uh, you know, 1954, when he came into the community, um, he at first uh, seemed like a very dynamic uh, person. He was very intelligent. Uh, when he came to town, the, the church was decrepit and the school was uh, a former uh, 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 business, uh, uh, a former store. I, I can't think of the word, but uh, anyway. Uh, he, he built a brand new church. It's beautiful. It's still to this day. It's, it's a great place. 
He built a brand new school with a brand new gym. He built a convent for the for the nuns, and he built a uh, uh, a home for the priests. And he, I mean, he was he he was the kind of guy that would come in and convince the people that this was God's plan. This was God's command that they uh, be the shining light uh, in the community. That as Catholics, they needed to be, you know the best they could be. And he uh, talked about money on the, in the sermons every week. And people, that's about the only really bad criticism of his, him at, at first is he constantly talked about money and money. And, you know, the, the, the bulk of the people who were members of the church were farmers. And sometimes farmers didn't get crops. They didn't have any money, but he'd badger them for money anyway. And so it was uh, that that kind of thing. So he had a lot of success on from that standpoint uh but he started perpetrating uh, sexually almost immediately like i said he had a child within a year of coming into the community and um he uh, would uh interfere in in marriages he would uh, uh uh sexually abuse uh the women of the parish he broke up uh five marriages uh that i know of um he uh, uh, sexually abused high school kids. Uh, after I wrote the book, I got a call from somebody who happened to be the sister of one of my best friends uh, telling me about how she had been abused. Uh, he, uh, the, the, I think the most, the ugliest thing that he ever did is he used, he, well, I'll come back to the, he had a lot of money and I'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. Uh, he would take the girls that decided to become nuns on a uh, trip, a rewards trip. And he owned three hotels in Disneyland. And he would take those girls. And the story was to the parents, I'm taking the girls to Disneyland to reward them for, you know, their dedication to the, 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 uh, the convent. And inevitably, They'd sleep with him, and he owned three hotels in Disneyland. That is, he actually owned them. Yes, yes, and that, that's really a significant part of the story because it has to do with yeah. how how Ronald Air, Don, Ron Earhart became the head football coach there. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, and that's the thing that I mean. So remind me again, and obviously the audience too, the name of this individual that referring that we're referring to here. His name is Father Eugene Lemires, and if you look up his name, you'll you'll be able to find his estate and, and uh, see uh, all the details surrounding the settlement of his estate, which is is a, a part of the book, uh, the end part of the book that I that I get into. Um, but it, so going back, he, he had uh, not only was he a, a sexual abuser, but he was a thief. He grew up a very very poor. Uh, young man. His father died when he was seven. His mother, uh, you know, did, uh, well, she had a, a brother that was a farmer who gave her enough money to acquire a whole house that she could rent out. She she cleaned houses and she rented this one place. And, and you know, they were just very poor. This priest uh, uh, started working at 14 and people that he worked for, uh, the account that I got was that he was he was loved because he worked hard and he was, uh, you know, uh, easy to manage and whatever. So, uh, 
it's it's hard to figure out uh, what motivated him, how he got started on, down this path. But he um, took money from the offertory, and he had gone to college to, to graduate school with an individual. I, I'm not going to be able to remember his name. I'm sorry, I didn't do my research, but he was the <laughs> He, he had gone to Marquette, graduate school at Marquette, uh, with this priest who later became the, the uh, uh, chief uh, finance person in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And uh, he knew John Kennedy, or uh, Joe Kennedy, John Kennedy's dad. Uh, John Kennedy's dad, Joe Kennedy, was a, a good friend of Pope Pius XII. And uh, he actually... Uh, visited and his kids and Pope's presence in the Vatican and all, very good friends. And so uh, the finance chairman of the Los Angeles uh, Archdiocese uh, met Kennedy through this, you know, the Catholic hierarchy is all kind of, uh, they all kind of talk to each other, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, he found out that Kennedy was pumping and dumping oil stocks in Alaska. Joe was. Joe Kennedy. Joe was. And you're saying that Lemire's found this out? Well, first of all, the, the finance chairman, the, the, the priest in, at the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, started pumping money into this fraudulent deal. And they made so much money that they were able to build the entire school system of the Los Angeles Catholic school system, the Los Angeles Archdiocese. And then he... he uh, uh, gave those these trades to this priest. And so the priest was able to steal enough money from the offertory to invest in this scheme, and he made a fortune, just like the art school, the uh, Arch Law, uh, Los Angeles Archdiocese did. And then, of course, it was a fraudulent deal, and those things unravel, and the late entries lose a ton of money, but the early entries get out right away, and they walk away with the money. And so he... Pyramid scheme. Did, yeah, all right. And he, he then took that money and he invested it at uh, G.D. Searle and Company, the inventor of the of the birth control pill. And he oh, tripled. Yeah, can you imagine uh, the uh, cynicism is just unbelievable. Well, and it's playing but, right into their agenda too. I mean, like, don't have a baby out of wedlock and all this stuff. I mean, it's it's it's. Evil genius, almost. Yeah, well, it is. It, uh, it's a good word for it. And it, anyway, he tripled his money in three years, and then uh, Joe Kennedy got out of, you know, that kind of activity, and he got into real estate. So the priest followed him into the real estate business, and by hook or by crook, he ended up with twelve hotels, and his brother uh, operated those ho the, the, those hotels for him. And the reason I know so much about this aspect of uh, of the priest's life is that um, he got into an argument one time with his brother, and I'll, it's a part of the story. Uh, and the, it was uh, it's a very violent argument. And afterwards, about three months later, his, his brother died of a heart attack, and his sister-in-law. Uh, just hated this priest, and so she was willing to talk to me. And that's how I found about out about the uh, trips that he was taking these girls that wanted to be nuns uh, to the 
you know, the hotels in Disneyland and, and those kinds of things and a number, number of other things that were just uh, um, revealing, let's put it that way. But, you know, here's my suspicion. I don't know this to be the fact, but I wrote it this way in the book, that uh, he identified vulnerable women in the confessional. Okay. Catholics were encouraged to go to confession every once a week. And a lot of the really uh, true believers would go every day. And so when when women were having a struggle at home with their husbands uh, or with a, if they got into an illicit relationship uh, otherwise, uh, he would know he would find out about this. He knew the vulnerable women in the community. And that's that's who he would go after. And so. Uh, as I said, he broke up marriages and and created a lot of problems. But the key thing here is that the rumors that went around the community were were uh, spread by the kids in, in school. And the parents would get very angry if they heard their children talking bad about this priest because they were true believers. They thought it priests were God and that this, you know, the feeling was there's no way a priest could do something like this. And so that was the the environment that he lived in. The kids talked about the priest and knew what he, what he was doing. The parents tried to stop them from talking. And so he knew there was a problem. And so he took his money. And uh, as I mentioned in the reading of the back there, uh, they won a, a, a 1970 state championship in basketball. Well, the coaches that he hired were paid multiples of what they could earn any place else because he had the money to do it. And he knew that if he built the sports empire at this school, that there's no way the people would fight him or would ever believe the rumors. And so we, uh, Ron Earhart came to town and lost his first three games. We had never had a winning season. He then won 25 in a row. Wow. And left. With, the fo- with your football team there. Yeah. And the new coaches uh, were, if they if they lost two games in a year, it was unusual. We were either undefeated or lo- would lose one game a year in football. They won state championships in wrestling. Uh, we're in the state tournament in basketball just about every year. Took second a few times and, and first just the one time, but uh, I don't know how that happened, <laughs> how they how they failed to, to win more state basketball championships. But anyway. Well, uh, I, I have was, to ask you something really quick. Sorry to jump in here, but uh, with, with Earhart there, uh, you said it's Ron Earhart? Yeah. And he was like, like you, right, we kind of mentioned here, he goes on to, you know, head coach the Patriots. And have you found, have you looked into him much and found maybe some kind of connection, whether it be through the Jesuits or through the Freemasons or any of these high-level societies, these fraternal organizations where maybe there would be some reason why Eugene here would want to tap into somebody like him specifically? You know, I don't think that there was any connection. And the reason is that uh, this uh, Ron Earhart came out of college and spent one year as an assistant coach at one of the big, bigger schools in the state. And then he was recruited with big money out of there to come to New England. He'd been a, a star player in college, in a small college called Jamestown College in Jamestown, North Dakota. Uh, but it, uh, 
this priest was really good at, at identifying high quality coaches. Um, the coaches that followed Earhart, um, one of them is, is turned out to be a kind of a good friend of mine for a while. I have I've kind of lost track of him, but um, he hated him, but he won football games. Uh, just a smug did, guy or something like just kind of a, a horrible yeah, person. Constantly correcting them and, and giving them advice about how to coach. And, you know, these guys were great coaches. They didn't need any help from him. And they resented his interference. And, and um, you know, he'd do uh, crazy things that uh, irritated the coaches. And uh, so that's kind of the situation. And then, uh, yeah, he, you have any examples of, like, the crazy things he would do that would just, like, make these guys really angry with him? Well, he would sit in the in the basketball seat during the basketball season. He'd sit in the stands uh, all by himself taking notes. And then as soon as the game is over, he'd go into the coaching uh, uh, office, coach's office, and start lecturing them about what they did wrong and what they should have done. What they, uh, what, uh, you know, it's just crazy. Wow. And it was like second guessing. And the fact that he had gone out to find this great coach, but he didn't leave him alone to be a coach. He wanted to be, uh, you know, influential in their in their coaching processes. I yeah, like say. a coach to coaches almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just didn't come over well. His, sure. his per- personality was, he was kind of an arrogant guy. And uh, he didn't... Uh, he, he wasn't very discreet in his critique of the coaches. He even uh, made snide remarks in the Sunday Bulletin at times when he could, could not successfully influence a coach. <laughs> so mm. I mean, it wasn't anything overt, but it was just little stuff that people would people understood what he was you know what he was getting at. Very passive aggressive, seeming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So uh, the uh, but there's another uh, incident I think that really uh, is is the, is the um, probably the the most important component of the book because he this he went out um, and uh, first of all he hired his nephew to coach the basketball team and that he was a great coach he was my high school coach uh, just for one year because after that year he discovered that the priest was sleeping with his wife oh. and so he got very angry. They had a big confrontation. You can read it in the book. He took his gun and he went up to the priest's house and he was going to kill him. And uh, the cops got there first. It's a small town. So his wife was able to get him on the phone real quick and warn him. And they got there about the same time as the, uh, as, uh, as the coach did. And so they talked him out of it. Uh, but then again, that was not something that was anybody in the community ever learned about before they started trying to get rid of this guy. So anyway, he left, and then the next coach uh, was the had the best record in high school basketball and football in the history of the state of Montana, and he was teaching or he was coaching at the uh, at Billings Central uh, Catholic High School in Billings, Montana, but he was an alcoholic, and he had finally worn out his his welcome, and they fired him. This priest found him in a bar uh, drinking whiskey in Grable, Wyoming, talked him into coming to a little town in New England, North Dakota. I call it New London in the book, but it's New England, North Dakota, and um, promised that he would pay for his alcohol rehab 
he would get his wife and kids to come back. They were they were splitting up. He would disappear for days and weeks at a time, and so the marriage was 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 pretty much gone. Uh, but he got them back together, and then he paid him huge amounts of money to come and uh, to the school. So he was as successful as every other coach there. Um, he, uh, but the priest had a car accident and a bad one almost got, he was almost killed. Uh, and it was near, um, uh, little falls, Minnesota. And he was in the hospital there for a long time, but the wife of this coach was so enamored or so thankful that she, he had been able to successfully, uh, restore his, their marriage that she, and she was a nurse. Failed to mention that. She happened to be a nurse. And so she went to the hospital in Little Falls, Minnesota, and asked if he, she could be his personal uh, caregiver. And they consented, paid her a little bit of money. And so she spent the better part of a year there, but it wasn't very long, and they were sleeping together. Mm. And, and the coach never found out about it for you know a significant period of time. But when he did... It just, everything collapsed. I mean, uh, was this guy finding like coaches with like hot wives or something? I mean, what's going on here? It seems like he's sleeping with all the wives of these people. Well, coaches have a way, have a way of getting hot wives. <laughs> uh, I, I, fair enough. Yeah. They're alpha dudes. They're, they're I know, I know former that athletes. Because, I, I know that because I was a coach. Oh, and you got a hot wife yourself. Hot wife too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. She's not just hot; she's a wonderful person. So, <laughs> well, that's what's most important. But no, I, I find that just it, it's very interesting. And and you mentioned something, and you know, I wanted to jump in and ask you about this before. But why do you think you said you weren't sure what the guy's motives were? This Eugene character, the priest that that we're referring to here, um, you weren't sure what his motivation was, but you had some ideas. Would you? Well, I, would I you, think he was, he was a sex addict. That's all. Okay. In, there's no question about that because uh, we don't know the the facts of the extent of his uh, activity. But it would, if somebody uh, could verify that he had a hundred uh, mates, I would believe that in an instant. He was prolific. Uh, I, let me finish the story about absolutely. So the wife, they start sleeping with the wife and they've got eight kids. And that ends up being a 15 year relationship. And as, as time went on, the coach got to be a problem because he started drinking again. And his, his oldest kid was, was a hell of a guy. He's a good friend of mine. And, uh, he started creating problems in the community because he was starting to talk. And so they went and, they uh, got uh, a mental hospital to send out a crew to grab him and uh, take him away, put him in an institution. And he got wind of it somehow. Uh, she called him home one day out of school, which was totally, uh, it was never done, um, to talk to this priest and have a conference. And he said, Oh no, this ain't, this, this is, uh, not going to happen. He got in the car and left and, and none, nobody in his family saw him for seven years. Mm. Never communicated to him with her or anything. So that was, 
that was, uh, you know, one of the really sad, the really sad case uh, of this family, because it not only, uh, you know, caused problems between husband and wife, obviously, but... Uh, Where'd he go for the seven years? Uh, it turned out he went to uh, to Wisconsin and, and coached basketball and, and a couple of schools in Wisconsin. Uh, nobody knew where he was, so nobody heard about it. So he just I, left I, his family and started coaching, or uh, continued he, coaching, I guess, somewhere yeah, else. He, he, he was already alienated from, because of the, the relationship that the priest had with his wife, and the kids, one, kids were taken, some of the kids were taken his side, some of the kids were taken her side, and it really destroyed the family as well. And that's, that's still an ongoing problem all these years later. Um, yeah, but, there's so much of the story that it seems like this guy had a, had a legitimate power over people's emotions in a well, way. Well, he, he did in, in a lot of ways have power because of his pre, uh, status as a priest. Um, in a small town, know, sure. Sure, yeah, sure. And, and they were loyal. He could forgive sins. They had guilt about things yeah. that they had done. They confessed them to him. He, you know, he, he knew all of the problems that were going on in the families and the communities because he heard their confessions. He was, he was a, uh, uh, not hesitant to, to use that information to get what he wanted. And, and so, uh, yeah, it, it was just a sad, sad, uh, situation. How do you feel about the idea of the confession? Um, the, the, it seems like a ritual to me and you know, the way I feel about it, I, I I'm agnostic. I say this all the time. I believe in Jesus. I, I tend to, uh, you know, I, I, let me just put it this way. I'm a fan of Jesus. That's, that's the way I put it. I don't really know exactly what's going on on this other, on the other side of this realm that we're in, but I like what Jesus represents. Um, yeah. I choose good over evil, uh, 10 times out of 10. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't, uh, agree with anything that's going on, uh, that isn't beneficial to humankind and all this stuff. But I find the ritual of the confession to be sort of almost like a very benevolent seeming blackmail type situation where, you know, if I'm a pastor and you're coming in or a, a priest, sorry. Uh, and, and, you know, you are coming in to confess something to me. If I'm sort of a, you know, conniving type person, I can use your confession to hold that against you. If you, you know, cheat on your wife or you, uh, drank and went into work or something like that, I can hold, hold your confessions over your head in a way. Do you feel the same way or do you feel like there's a, a positive aspect of the confession? uh ritual as i call it well i you know i i'm not a true believer when it comes to you know the rules uh, of the church and the confession uh the confessional is an old tradition i think that uh it was maybe much more benign in the early days and these are just my opinions sure uh, People were uneducated. Uh, they were, you know, fearful of the unknown. Uh, and it was just, it was just a different world. And so, if you know, if, if they were taught the Ten Commandments and they violated the Ten Commandments, as an example, and they felt guilty, uh, it was good for them to go to talk to the priest about that, and he could counsel them during the confession. 
And uh, so it wasn't necessarily and isn't to this day, I think, necessarily a, a bad institution. I think it's just uh, uh, good or bad based on the uh, approach that the individuals will take to it. I mean, I don't go to confession, and I, I'm not afraid to say that. I don't care if my pastor say, hears me say that. I just uh, believe that that's a part of the church that is anachronistic. Uh, I think the personal relationship with Jesus that, that you hear mostly from fundamentalist Christians uh, uh, is really where it's all at. Uh, Jesus spoke to individuals. He didn't speak to uh, the nation or the church. He didn't. There was no church then. Well, it seemed and like so, he despised big religion. Yeah, well, yeah, in a lot of ways, because they had, you know, the, the Jewish uh, tradition had been corrupted by uh, many, many, many years of dominance by those that had an education that uh, uh, acquired power and used that power to control people. And that's really what happened in the Catholic Church as well. And it, it, I don't know what it is in some of the Protestant churches. I think they're less less rigid that way. But um it was not uh, something that was all that bad in the beginning. It served a good purpose in the beginning. But as time goes on and people get educated and they begin to understand and have this personal relationship, which is really the ideal. I mean, you, you get this personal relationship for the purpose of becoming a better person and being able to identify the things that happen in life that you could have uh, reacted differently to and better. Uh, and so that's my my journey. I think it's a good journey. I like to go to church on Sunday. I love the the uh, the uh, ritual of the Catholic Church. Uh, I you know some of the homilies, some of the great priests are you know are preaching great messages. It's just that the overall uh, church, the uh, the higher you go into the hierarchy, the more, rigid things are, the more suspect they are, uh, you know, the more power that is, is, uh, uh, generated by those people. And it's, it's just, it's just something that doesn't work anymore. Um, so anyway, that's where I'm at. And I wrote the book because I, I saw, well, I'll tell you the reason that I wrote the book is I, I have seven siblings and uh, I have an alcoholic father, and for some reason that that created a huge unity amongst our our family, and so we love each other. I mean, all eight of us. We just we're just a a great family, and uh, we used right. to we used to go to vac on vacation or a family reunion every two years, and all we'd ever talk about was this priest, <laughs> this, this uh, Eugene. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, he tried to get my, my uh, second oldest sister in bed with him. She went to the convent. Oh, my God. How do you not yeah. want to kill this guy if he's trying to take advantage of your sister? Well, uh, you know, it really didn't become an issue. I mean, uh, she never made a big deal out of it. Uh, I don't think I found out of it in real time. Um, but uh, she wasn't, you know, uh, the type of person that should have been in the convent. And the, okay. And, People told her that, and so she she left. And he well, went why is to that? If you don't mind went, me asking, I don't know much about the the rules. Uh, what do you, I'm sorry. What was the question? Why why wasn't she a person that should have been a part of of the the convent, as you say? Well, she didn't follow the rules very well. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, you gotta she, you gotta fall in line. She got caught smoking, and that was kind of about the last straw. Smoking <laughs> weed? No, no, no. Cigarettes. Oh, oh okay. Well, yeah, you that's bad for you. You could well, you couldn't do that in the convent. That was forbidden. So <laughs> okay, yeah, I get it. I get it. And she she's a wild person, anyways. Till to this day, I mean, she's crazy. But uh, <laughs> yeah. so when he went and tried to talk her out of leaving, uh, they they took her out for dinner. And at the end of the dinner, he tried to go to get her into his hotel motel room to say the rosary, which was his uh, his thing, you know. That was and, like code for like. You're oh, going to yeah. pretend to say the rosary, but then we're going to do some stuff. Yeah, she she if she hadn't consented, she'd have gotten raped. And, wow. And, yeah. No, he he didn't. Uh, if you said no, he was he was not happy. And so. And he would he, punish these people by raping them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would guess that a lot of the sex that he had was not consensual. Uh, to, especially to the uh, to the extent that he he had this power over people, so he can make he could make them uh, feel obligated to do what he wanted, even though they knew it was wrong, uh, and they didn't want to do it. I mean, are you kidding me? Although here here here's a uh, uh, a, a representation of the attitude that you could find in these small towns among committed Catholics. There is a woman in town who had, uh, I believe, 12 kids. And during this process, when they, he was being uh, removed from the community, my, he, she told my sister that she would be honored to have sex with this priest. Mm. Can you imagine that? So, so that you, 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 I it's can't, hard. unfortunately. It's because, yeah. that kind of, kind of attitude in today's world. But it, it existed in those days, and that's uh why he was able to you know manifest all these this crazy activity i mean it was just crazy yeah it's horrible it's just it's people that blindly trust the authoritative figures and uh yeah. you know they want to i mean i i know that you identify with catholicism but that's my biggest problem with it is that they they put these people on pedestals like this um the the idea of worshiping saints um and and all these things um and again i'm i'm not the the biggest religious scholar um but man when you when you put people up on this level imagine that jesus himself is trying to sleep with you as a woman i mean man any woman is going to fall for that if if someone actually if a woman actually believes that that there's like this reincarnation of god trying to sleep with them I mean, they feel chosen, they feel special, and then they're going to do it. You know, they're going to do, they're going to fall, fall right in line with whatever this man's saying. It's a, it's a sad situation. And it seems like, uh, it, it, you see it more and more in small towns like this. Yeah. It's, it, uh, it's going away. I mean, you're not seeing that so much anymore. Um, you don't think so? No, I don't think so. I think that they, because of the scandal, you know, and the, uh, because of the internet, basically. Of all the information, Welfare. yeah, and so they have to back off. They have to be more um, consistent in their approach to uh, uh, dealing with these problems. And and uh, um, the priest, the selection of the priests has uh, been become more rigid, um, more uh, thought uh, 
the, the keeping this from happening. I'm sorry, I can't come up with the words I want here, but uh, is becoming more important in the church. And so they're selecting, being more careful in their selection of, of new priests, things like that. So, so rather I, than it being your regular, uh, you know, church on the corner, it's going to be more like the Vatican types where these people, I mean, these people, let's face it, not just the Vatican, any major church in any, you know, major faith or the, the six big ones in the world, right? Any one of these are going to be shielded from persecution of any kind because they have like a expert lawyer team. And I mean, there, there's all kinds of entities but, protecting these major. That's going a step further than what I, what I meant is is uh, in being more careful in their selection process, they're um, being more important to, to, to understand the motivation of these individuals who want to become priests and yeah. uh, try to ferret out those that that are uh, looking for power and control uh, versus, you know, the... Sex the, and things. Yeah, yeah. So to, to keep those people out of the priesthood. No, they're not 100% successful, obviously. Priests are human beings. They're yeah. going to do things. The problem is not the, the what the priest is doing. It's The pro- problem is the fact that the church protects them. And if these priests are found out and removed immediately because they violated their oaths and they've hurt the church, that would be uh, kind of a normal course of life, wouldn't it? I mean, not everybody that you choose is going to be perfect. Not that anybody that chooses you is going to be perfect. Uh, when those that are imperfect fail, you find out about it, you discipline them, you get rid of them, you kind of renew the, the community by uh, getting rid of those that aren't uh, playing the game the way they should, you know, so to speak. Yeah, I heard this idea, and it's interesting that you say that they try to remove, and I'm not disagreeing with you for the record, but I, you know, the idea that they're trying to remove sex addicts and maybe alcoholics or drug addicts of any kind, whether it be marijuana, cocaine, heroin, any of these different drugs that, that individuals might be uh, addicted to who are trying to seek some sort of power uh, position. I would actually feel like they would try to tap into these people more because they can exploit that weakness. I mean, you see this with um, like Jonestown, uh, Jim Jones and Charles Manson and these old fashioned cults. And I you may you may view this a lot differently than I do, but I view modern day big religion um, or things like scientism and things like this as modern day cults. If you're if you're like steadfast on supporting the pope or supporting uh dr fauci right or any of these uh, different entities or, or individuals blindly and anything that they say is 100 percent truth in fact i think that that is um a lot of these people have their own problems whether it be like i said fauci or or the pope they have some skeletons in the closet that the higher ups know about and they can kind of bribe them into being like the puppet that they need to be on the global stage. I don't know if if I'm articulating that well enough for for you to kind of you know go back and forth with me on that about but I think that a lot of these figureheads have some serious skeletons in their closet and maybe some addictions. Well, uh, you know, when you get into the hierarchy, 
uh, I think you got an, you're in a different world than you are on like on the parish level. Sure, sure. And and where the problem is problems are uh, as far as the communities of faithful is, are concerned is in the parishes because that's where the priest takes advantage of the of the people and does his dirty deeds and uh, the fact that the church then protects him from rumors from punishment and and uh, tries to minimize and uh, what he did and hide it that's where the problem is when you when you get into uh, this whole business of hierarchy how the church is run I believe that that by and large it's with it's with good intentions so when they uh, select a priest for the priesthood or usually you self-select but but when they allow you to come to the pre, to the seminary and and uh, work yourself through the seminary and then become ordained and things like that they're looking for good people they're not they're not trying to to uh, excuse uh, you know per, um, bad people they're just not doing that that well i that's my opinion mm-hmm. i i think this is just the problems in the church are a natural uh, uh result of the uh, existence of the hierarchy hierarchical uh, uh, uh ruling of the church the higher you get up the more corruption is enabled and when you get to the top, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on to try to be instrumental in choosing the Pope. And the Pope has to be political in order to get the, you know, people to vote for him and, and things like that. Some are, some are not political. They just accept the appointment. And, uh, uh, others are, uh, uh, are political. I think this, this, uh, current Pope might be. Maybe one of them. Uh, he had his his uh, his uh, uh, supporters who worked hard uh, to get him elected. That's for sure. And I'm not sure how much he encouraged them, but uh, I'm I'm a little bit suspicious. But anyway, well, he's I think... moving the goalposts with that religion as well, right? I mean, he's he's saying that hell's not real, which you know who knows if it's real or not. He's saying hell's not real. He's saying that gay marriage is okay. Um, and, and we don't need to even comment right now, uh, how you feel about those kinds of things, but this is traditionally what Catholics don't believe in. And he's moving the goalposts just to, to try and get more people to accept the faith uh, of Catholicism, in my opinion. Well, uh, that's, that's kind of why I'm glad I'm not a dumb non-Catholic. Guys, thank you for tuning in, listening can't thank you enough for all your support and a big thanks to charles utter and his awesome book roman collar crime this was a fun one and i hope that you enjoyed it so far if you are not following the show over there at patreon.com slash dangerous world podcast please do so please support the work and uh you get this full episode and many many others guys for just three dollars a month what the fuck are you waiting for get your shit together scrape three dollars together and i'll see you over there take care